Good morning, good evening. My name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Radio Wolf, our international webcast for consciousness and culture. And I'm happy to have here in the radio Thomas Bjorkman. Thomas, you are in the line. Yes, thank you very much for having me on your channel. Thomas, so great to talk to you. Uh, just to introduce you, I mean, there are so many things one can say about you. The simplest, you see yourself as an applied philosopher and a social entrepreneur. You have originally, you are a scientist, but you also uh, wear something that people call a serial entrepreneur. You uh, uh, started many companies, uh, smaller ones and bigger ones, and you sold them. And now you work as something that one can call a social entrepreneur. Maybe you want to talk about this later on. And you're also a book writer. You just came out with a new book that's called uh, The World We Create, From God to Bargain. But we invited you for a book we are particularly interested in that also came out recently in English. It's called The Nordic Secret, a European story about duty and freedom. First, do you want to say some more things about yourself? Uh, or what is a social entrepreneur? Well, I, I think you described me uh, uh, very well. Uh, at the bottom, I'm a, a scientist. I studied mathematics and physics at university. But then for various reasons, I decided uh, to pursue a, a career in, in business. Uh, started a number of companies in IT, property, and in banking. Uh, was an investment banker for more than... Uh, 20 years, and now I sometimes call myself uh, an um, reformed investment banker. I see. Yeah. So my first book, actually, I've written three books, and you mentioned two of them. My first book was actually when I came out of the banking world. I wrote a book called The Market Myth that mm -hmm. is really taking an inside view on the market and the way that the market, in many respects, is a very efficient tool that we tend to forget that it is a man-made construction and not a natural phenomenon. And that as strong as it is in some cases, in other cases, it is also very weak, a very weak tool. And we sometimes put a little bit too much faith in the market. Uh, today, I'm uh, mainly busy with operating my foundation in Stockholm, the Oak Island Foundation, the Ekferet Foundation, which uh, has been up and running now for 10 years, where we really try to look into the relationship between personal inner development and societal change. And we do that both in very practical ways with youth camps on our island in the summer and retreats during uh, the rest of the year but also from a little bit more philosophical and academic mm. point of view as well. And I uh, may say that uh, this project and the island uh, that you are having as a, a youth camp and also a camp for adult education is somehow also related to the book that we today want to talk about, The Nordic yes, Secret. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, perhaps I should just, first of all, really want to stress that I have written 
this particular book together with my okay. friend and colleague Lena Anderson, who is a Danish writer and uh, and philosopher, and I cannot strongly enough emphasize uh, her efforts with this uh, book. She put in a lot more efforts in the book. Uh, uh, than I did actually. So yeah. no, thank you so much for bringing her in because yeah. uh, it's the two of you who wrote that book, and Absolutely. Uh, so thank you very much for just setting that straight <laughs> right away from the beginning. <laughs> and I have to say I was very intrigued when I heard about this book um, because uh, the story somehow is is, is quite simple because um, I, I think. Everyone around the world somehow is aware that uh, the, uh, this in Scandinavia, the Nordic country in, in Europe, Scandinavia is an interesting place. They seem to be more liberal, more social. There is kind of an interesting um, value structure there. They seem to be happier than other people. Uh, something seems to be working there. Um, and you and uh, your partner, you wrote in the book that um, there is an interesting development in the last 200 years in this Nordic country because in the uh, 1800s, uh, the Nordic country, Scandinavia, was quite a poor part of uh, Europe. It was basically a peasant culture and it was a, a also a, a feudal cult culture. And in quite a short time, in a very peaceful process, it seemed that uh, from the end of the 19th century uh, to the middle of the 20th century, there's a quite remarkable transformation that happened there. And the absolutely, question is... Absolutely. And, and it's easy uh, to forget uh, exactly what you emphasize here, that... Uh, all the Nordic countries were at the end of the 1800s amongst the absolutely poorest countries in in Europe. And uh, just to take the example of Sweden, during the last couple of decades in the 1800s, up to 30% of the working population actually emigrated, mainly to the US, because uh, uh, people were, were starving and could not uh, support themselves. So we were really at a very terrible uh, situation. And then, as you say, just a few generations uh, later, we are all, all of, all of the Nordic countries are at the top of the richest, the happiest, the most stable industrial democracies in, in the world. So uh, something um, uh, there in the history, we got right. We did something very right there. Because and of course, there are many explanations for yeah. this and many explanations given. I mean, we had already to start with a high literacy rate. We had iron ore and we had the forests and uh, natural resources, but a forgotten uh, source of this transformation. Uh, and it's really a secret even to uh, us living in the Nordic countries that at the end of the 1800s, we had in all the Nordic countries very visionary intellectuals and politicians that knew about the importance of inner growth, consciousness development and inner transformation and how important those aspects are when it comes to the development of societies and developments of values and 
cultures. And that was completely new to both me and Lena when we started to research this book. So that's a pretty radical claim that you and Lena uh, have there, because basically you're saying that uh, in the growth uh, that seemingly visionary leaders in uh, countries like Denmark, Norway, and Sweden are brought to their population, change the whole culture. And we called this uh, a Radio Wolf uh, episode, Can a World in Crisis Learn from Scandinavia? Because there are two factors interesting. One, that this development happened so fast. And the second is that it happened peacefully. So you, yeah. are, say, you are saying there is something, an orientation to inner growth that made this change happen or at least uh, played a major part in that. Can you say more, where does it come from? Who were the people who applied that? Uh, and and how should we envision uh, applying inner growth for the change of societies? Yes. So, so um, uh, to start with what happened in the Nordic countries at the eight or the 1800s, one should remember that back then, German, the German language was the main academic language in all of the Nordic countries. And the Nordic countries were very influenced by German philosophy and not the least the German idealistic philosophy. Writers like Schiller, Goethe, Herder, von Humboldt were all read in original German language by both the political and the cultural elite in the Nordic countries. And from the writings of these philosophers, um, these leading politicians, they developed an understanding that in times of rapid societal change, and of course there at the end of the 1800s everyone could see industrialization and urbanization and all those transformational forces at play during such times of rapid societal transformation it's just so easy for us humans to want to have an external authority to hold on to mm -hmm. something to put our trust in it could be a dogmatic religion or it could be an authoritarian leader. But these politicians in the Nordic countries, they did not want to promote religion, nor did they want to become authoritarian leaders. They, they were dedicated to building democracy. And they knew that the only way to build democracy is to build it from bottom up. So what they wanted to do was that they realized that they needed to uh, help a substantial part of the population to develop what we today might call an inner compass, develop themselves to be grounded enough in themselves not to have to rely on an external authority, but rather become what uh, adult development psychologists today might call to become self-authoring to connect with your own inner compass and actually be able to hold the complexity of societal change and be able to navigate that complexity. So they knew that they needed perhaps not a majority of the population, but at least what we today would call some sort of 
critical mass reaching a tipping point of, of people that could become conscious co-creators of the modern democratic society. So then the, the question is, what did they actually do? What did they do? And, and here is really the, the, the secret. And I sometimes, a bit jokingly, but they, it's actually quite a lot of truth in it. I usually say that uh, they created retreat centers for inner growth. Mm -hmm. They created a lot, lot of these retreat centers. So at the turn of the last century, year 1900, there was a hundred retreat centers like this in Denmark alone, 75 in Norway and 150 in Sweden, where young adults, usually in the beginning of their 20s, could later on with a full state subsidy spend up to six months in retreat with the expressed aim of becoming grounded in themselves and connecting to the inner compass to become self-authoring and to be able to act as conscious co-creators of democracy. And when this program was at it its height, almost exactly 100 years ago, actually 10% of each young generation, of each new generation, participated in one of these half-year-long retreats. And of course, with 10% of the population, and many of these, even the majority of these coming from farming background or working class background, of course, this had uh, a tremendous impact and created some sort of tipping point in society where the population, a large part of the population, actually could function as independent co-creators of democracy in many many different ways and uh, again this um, this is a story that is not really uh, uh, known even in scandinavia mm. and th i think if i could continue that just explaining also why why that is the case and that is the case that these centers actually still exist and they are called folk high schools mm. uh, but today uh, everyone is just um, uh, thinking that they were adult education centers, uh, which they clearly were not. It was not about learning specific trades or uh, skills. It was really about this, what some people call the vertical inner development or consciousness uh, mm -hmm. development that this was all about. What I find so intriguing about this, uh, particular uh, people uh, who are interested in uh, what, let's call it just inner development. Uh, there is always the hope that inner development, of course, also translates somehow to society. But there is a conflict uh, in society where basically this idea sound very idealistic. But it seems that what happened uh, in Scandinavia is a huge historical experiment of implying personal inner growth in a social context with huge demonstrable outer results. If this is the case, uh, this is something where one would, could make a claim, not just in Europe, but worldwide, that maybe if we focus about human development, 
this is not just good about the people in a personal way. It changes all of our societies and works in many dimensions. And this is not just some idealistic dream, but it seems that the Nordic secret is demonstrating something that this is uh, something that could be applied as a social strategy of the development of societies. Isn't that the case? Yes, definitely. And, and I see the Nordic secret and what we did in Scandinavia back then a hundred years ago or even 150 years ago. I see that perhaps not so much as a template for what to do today, but at least as a case study, mm-hmm. a, a huge case study showing that large scale focus on interpersonal development can translate into societal transformation if uh, you do this at a large enough scale. You need to reach some tipping point. If this is 5% of the population or 10% or 15%, um, I don't think one can say. But usually people talking about systems transformation and societal transformation would say that the tipping point might be in, in, in that neighborhood. It also depends a little bit on on uh, the distribution of these individuals. Mm. Had it just been some sort of societal elite that would have uh, uh, received this possibility of inner growth, I don't think that 10 or 15% would have been enough. Mm. Perhaps not even 25% if mm. it had been uh, um, restricted to a, a certain segment of society. Mm. But the beautiful thing about what happened in the Scandinavian countries was that this was made available to people everywhere in society. Mm. And then perhaps just 10% could be enough if this is really spread out everywhere in society. Yeah, I would like to hone a little bit about what this this is. Uh, Because uh, uh, this inner development, I mean, you, you... uh, named some points, uh, I think clarify already quite a bit, the, uh, developing the inner compass. But uh, you use in your book also the German word Bildung as a, as, a, as a concept of this inner development. And the German word for building in Germany can be easily translated into English as education. But uh, it is not the same, uh, Bildung and education. Uh, what is the specific quality of this Bildung term that you find a particular fruitful uh, in the way that it showed up in the Scandinavian countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and again, um, doing research for this this book and diving back into the history of these uh, intellectual uh, ideas that really uh, were very very widespread in the Scandinavian societies a hundred years ago. We we came to the German idealist philosophers. And of course, these philosophers, uh, again, perhaps starting with Kant, but definitely Schiller, Goethe, Herder, von Humboldt, and perhaps also Hegel. um, These idealist philosophers, they all really reacted against the Enlightenment philosophers' view of our mind as a rational machine. Uh, The Lockean view of our mind as a blank slate or Descartes' view of our mind. They they all said that, no, our mind is not a rational machine. Our mind is actually something very much more organic. And today, we, we might say that they thought that the mind was an organic 
self-organizing, self-developing system mm. that was not just located in our brain. Our mind is, they thought correctly, is embodied in the totality of our bodies and also embedded in language and in culture. And the process of this lifelong development of this system of our mind, they used the German word Bildung for. So uh, it is Bildung more in this respect um, describes an internal developmental process, some sort of organic realization of a potential that is within us all, but that for many, many people that never actually comes to any deeper uh, realization. Because uh, for our mind to undergo this process of building, uh, we need to have uh, some um, favorable uh, circumstances. So we, we need a a mix of security and safety so that we mm -hmm. dare to let go a little bit and, and evolve, but we also need a certain amount of challenge. Mm -hmm. So it's this balance between security and safety and an external challenge that uh, these Bildung philosophers thought were helpful in the development of our, of our mind. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that uh, some of these philosophers, in particular, I would, I would say Schiller, developed and described the various stages that our mind uh, can go through, the adult mind can go through. And these stages very well matches, and, and we describe this in, in our book, these stages very well matches the... Uh, models of contemporary uh, adult uh, developmental psychologists, like, for example, the Harvard professor Robert Keegan's model. Mm -hmm. And before I mentioned the, this concept of self-authoring, and that, that is a concept or a name of one of these very important developmental steps that we can take as adults that uh, Professor Keegan is using. And Schiller and Goethe was actually talking about exactly the same thing, mm -hmm. that one of the most important steps that we as adults can take, but also need to take in order to function well in a democracy, is to leave our adolescent mind, our socialized mind, where we are very much dependent on our peer groups or an outside authority to know our values and directions in life and take this very important step of internalizing our, the locus of control, finding our inner compass and becoming self-authoring. Mm -hmm. And Schiller was actually saying explicitly that the reason that the French Revolution failed, and of course these philosophers, uh, they lived through the times of the, the French Revolution and they had put so much hope in this revolution and that now finally we would have uh, people in power. But then, of course, the French Revolution ended up with people just looking for some sort of authority, first Robespierre and then later Napoleon. And Schiller said explicitly that the reason 
the French Revolution failed, turned into a bloodbath and into dictatorship, was that not enough many people in France had reached the adult developmental stage of being self-authoring. Mm-hmm. And this, all the, these Scandinavian intellectuals and politicians took to their heart. And they realized that developing democracy goes hand in hand with developing our, all our uh, capacity mm-hmm. to be self-authoring and self-guidance and connecting mm-hmm. to our inner values. Yeah. No, this is, this is all very, very interesting and very inspiring. Uh, and at the same time, of course, uh, we live 200 years after Schiller. And you already said uh, we can't use this as templates for our times. Uh, there, are, there are differences uh, that we um, uh, have to take into account here. And I just would like to ask you, uh, models like uh, Keegan's model of, of adult development, uh, how would they apply for social development this time? And also, we are living in a different time in the sense that Uh, when Schiller and Goethe were living, it was about a transition from traditional societies to modern societies. Mm. In big parts of the world, we do have modern societies right now, and it seems there is also the need to move to something beyond that. How would you think we can apply these experiences from uh, Denmark, uh, Norway, and Sweden to a world in crisis that we have right now, that simply we, we, we reach some dead end. There are crises uh, all over the place. There are also crises uh, in European countries. Uh, there are crises in the, in the US. Uh, uh, there, there are crises in, in many countries in the world. How can we apply these learnings? How would this look like today? And how would this be something that allows us to find new ways to create uh, a peaceful future. Mm. I, I think that, that we have to, to uh, separate two, diff- two, two things. And, and one is to just look at the crisis which democracy right now is finding itself in, in many countries in, in the world. Mm. That is one problem. And then the other uh, problem or challenge is how could we move beyond modernity or move beyond the, the modernity, postmodern condition that we have right now and try to, to uh, invent uh, a new way of organizing society that is beyond this modern, postmodern world that seems to be less and less uh, functional. Mm-hmm. And if we just start with the first problem, that looking at the crisis of democracy, um, there, uh, I can, for example, refer to one of Professor Keegan's uh, books uh, called uh, In Over Our Heads. And in, in, in that book, uh, already from the 90s, uh, he argues uh, exactly like, like uh, the uh, idealist philosophers that in order for Uh, the modern society, the modern democracy to work, we need to have enough many self-authoring individuals in society. And if you haven't reached that stage of of maturation or inner development, then Professor Keegan argues that you find yourself to a large extent in over your head in society. Mm -hmm. 
because democracy really demands that sort of maturity of uh, its citizens. And when the, the modern society and the democracy starts to become turbulent and we, we, we get worried about our jobs and about our futures, then again, uh, if, if we haven't reached that inner maturity and connected with our inner compass, then we become uh, afraid and start to look for an external authority, look for a simple answer to complex problems. And then it's very easy for us to, to think that constructing a wall could be the solution to our problems or exiting from the uh, European Union to take back control. That, that's a, that's a very simple solution. Unfortunately, too simple for our complex problems. Mm-hmm. So for democracy to really work in, in this complex world, we need more people to be self-authoring. Mm-hmm. And should we then take a, uh, take a next step and look at even more complex ways of organizing society? Because we should remember that what makes democracy so difficult is that it is a more complex and demanding way to organize society than uh, just a uh, dictatorship or a uh, kingdom was. Mm It's very simple to be a citizen in a dictatorship. You just follow uh, whatever the dictator says, and that's the end of it. Whereas uh, in a democracy, you have to take a much more active role and responsibility. And of course, if we are moving even beyond uh, democracy to even more complex way of organizing our society, that will put even more uh, demands Mm. on us as individuals. Mm. And we have not yet seen any more complex forms of organizing society than democracy. But you could easily take the parallel here to uh, organizations and organizational development. And there, Mm -hmm. of course, many organizational consultants and experts are pointing out that the modern way of organizing uh, uh, business ventures in this sort of hierarchical organization that was so efficient during the 1900s that that way of organizing is uh, becoming less and less efficient Mm -hmm. as the world becomes more and more rapidly developing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to uh, change into what some people call self-organizing organizations, where Mm -hmm. decisions can be taken much, much closer to the rapidly changing reality. Mm -hmm. And such an organization working in and participating in self-organizing organization, that puts even more demands on our inner capacities. And there you might even argue that the adult developmental stage of self-authoring might not be enough. Mm -hmm. We might even need to reach the quite elusive state that, again, Professor Robert Keegan calls self-transforming. Mm-hmm. So according to Keegan, and very similar to Schiller, we go from the socialized mind in our team, teens, which many people, a lot, perhaps a majority of our populations, according to Professor Keegan's estimates, will remain in their whole lives. 
but, but some will develop self-authoring capacities and an even smaller portion will develop self-transforming capacities. Mm-hmm. So then going back to your original question, so what about today and the societal transition that we are today? And if, if modernity has sort of is starting to reach an end and all these crises that we see in the world today, if, if they are symptoms of the fact that modernity is, is coming to an end, what capacities would we need to develop to be able to transcend modernity into something new? And perhaps one could argue that we would need a majority of the population to reach the stage of self-authoring mind and a critical mass even to reach the the stage of Mm. self-transcending, self-transforming. To bring what you're saying to maybe a very simple point, I found it interesting listening to you that again and again and again in your answers, you used the word complex and complexity. Isn't it that the inner development that you're talking about really boils down to that we all together have to learn uh, to handle the more and more complex societies that we are living in? And that the inner development uh, and the different stages that you are describing are basically capacities to deal with higher complexities of reality and that this adult development, it's not just adult development, it's human development, has to do justice that our societies don't become simpler. They become more and more complex. And in this kind of situation of over-complexity that is part of the crisis that we are in, to create uh, the capacity amongst a critical mass of people to handle this complexity in a different way, is the inner capacity to create mature societies. Isn't this inner development in the end uh, really focused about developing the capacity to deal with complexity? Yes, the, the, the simple answer to that is yes. But the little bit more deeper answer is mm-hmm. that if you talk about complexity in, in this way, it's very easy to, to misunderstand that and think that this that we are only talking about expanding our cognitive mm-hmm. capacities. The, the, this goes beyond expanding just the cognitive capacities. And again, going back to the German concept, original concept of Bildung, that was also not just cognitive development. It was development of, of both your, your, your mind, but also your heart, and you might even say your soul. So if you break down this adult development into a number of dimension or capacities, it might be easier to understand. And mm-hmm. of course, you can do this in many different ways. And I sometimes a bit arbitrarily would talk about five different dimensions or five different skills. We might even call them transformative skills that we need to develop uh, on our, on our, in a developmental journey. And the, if I could just uh, name them yes, uh, please. quite quickly, then I would say that the first one is about openness. To really develop the skill to stay open, even in times of rapid change and even in the face of fear, 
it's so easy for us to shut down and, and narrow our mind when we are facing big problems and big changes. But we really need to develop the capacity to stay open and really take in the complexity of, of our world today. So that would be the first one, openness. Then the second one would be perspective seeking, to actually actively seek different perspectives on the world and to know that in a more complex world, the more angles you can see the world from, uh, the deeper your understanding of the world. And then the next one would be sense-making, to develop your capacity of making sense of all these information and different perspectives that you've taken in. And to do that, not just in more complex ways, but also in deeper and in more nuanced ways. And understanding that even though it's very, very tempting to try to find the simple solutions, in very many cases, the solutions are complex, are nuanced, are with many gray scales. And to be able to hold that complexity, even to be able to hold the paradox that might come from viewing the world from different perspectives and not trying to eliminate the paradoxes, but actually can see that those paradoxes could actually add more understanding to, to the world. And then the fourth, would, would be, again, to develop your inner compass, to become inner-directed and to uh, uh, really connect with your own internal values, not the values that you are socialized into in society or in your peer groups, but what are your own innermost values. And then, finally, again, stressing the fact that this this, develop, this development is not just cognitive. The last cluster of skills I would mention is all about empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to be able to expand our, both our, the reach of our compassion to larger and larger groups, eventually embracing all human beings uh, on on the planet and perhaps even all sentient beings, but also de develop the depth of the compassion that you are able to, to feel. Mm -hmm. So skills like this, uh, psychologists have been uh, monitoring and measuring and trying to understand for many years. And the good news is that all of these skills that I mentioned, or clusters of skills, mm -hmm. uh, you, are, you are able to develop. It's absolutely scientifically shown that, for example, that you are not born with a certain amount of empathy, and, and that's it. No, you, you can develop your capacity for, for empathy, for example. That, that is the good news. These skills can be developed. The bad news is that they cannot just be taught in a normal school setting. For example, if you have some coworker, coworkers that you think would benefit from a development of empathy, you cannot just send him or her on a three-day course in empathy, and then they come back with a diploma and they are certified empathetic. No, that doesn't work. So 
developing these capacities involve deeper, often subconscious or unconscious psychological processes. And they, and to develop those processes, you need some sort of immersive, transformative learning. And again, that is what the German uh, idealist philosopher called Bildung. It is actually those transformative, deeper psychological processes that develops these types of capacities. The last question that I would like to ask is kind of an impossible question, but I ask it anyway. Um, how to do this? Uh, should we build retreat centers as the Scandinavian countries did in uh, the 1880s uh, in the Nordic European countries? Is this the, the strategy? We are in a completely different situation in, in many ways. Uh, you, you described uh, the capacities uh, that we need to handle the complexities of our society, not just on a cognitive level, but also on an emotional and I would say even on a spiritual level. What is the strategy to try to uh, provide this for, for, for all of us as a learning capacity? Is there any idea how we can implement uh, a new form of learning here? Mm. Yes, absolutely. And, and first, perhaps I, I should say that um, uh, the nice thing with these capacities or these skills is that you can very easily motivate the development of these skills from an individualistic perspective. I mean, what, what, what in this rapidly changing world, what skills should you develop to be able to, to function well and even be employable uh, in 10 years time? Well, some people say that you should learn to program in Sweden. Everyone is now learning to program. But if you talk to the big, tech companies they say that yeah this year and perhaps next year we will be employing a lot of programmers but in five years uh, we will not have any programmers at all the ai will do that better than any human being so in such a world it's very easy to understand that focusing on developing these inner capacities whatever the world will look like in 10 years time if you have developed your capacity for empathy and for sense-making and your inner compass, that will always be valuable. So you could actually argue for the development of these skills, this the inner development, from an individual perspective for yourself and for your children. But then the beauty is, of course, that in this societal transition that we are facing, the, the best thing that we can do in order to increase the odds for this societal change to have a positive outcome, for the societal system to self-organize on a more complex, but perhaps also more elegant way, is exactly the presence of these skills in many places out in the population. So by applying these skills on a personal level, you are actually helping the societal transition uh, as well. And then to your question, so how can we do that? Well, I think that, that a lot of the things that were developed a hundred years ago, uh, by, or even earlier by the Bildung philosophers and at these uh, Folk High School centers are still very valuable today. Uh, I think the basis for a personal development in any setting is 
um, the personal authentic contact between people in small groups where you can authentically share your emotions and your worries and help each other to develop over time. So I think a lot can be learned from what, what we already know. Then this field of transformative learning is also a growing research field. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of scientific research going on uh, right now where we are also learning new things. And then finally, I think that today we can also use uh, digital support for this kind of, of transformation. Not replacing the human-to-human contact, but certainly supporting that process. And one of the projects that my foundation in Stockholm, the Air Credit Foundation, the Oak Island Foundation, is doing together with a tech foundation in Stockholm called Norsheim Foundation, is to develop a digital platform for personal inner transformation. And that project is called 29k.org. 29K, that's 29,000. That's the number of days you hopefully have in your life. And the tagline for the project is make them all matter. So, uh, yeah, relying on, on the old experience of, and knowledge of personal development that was done 100 years ago and is do, done today in retreat centers all over the world, like SLN might be the most prominent example of, of these more modern uh, retreat centers that have been active in many, many, during many, many decades and have a lot of knowledge here. And then applying the latest research and uh, looking to what extent we can use even digital uh, support to really Mm. scale this and to make it accessible to everyone. Mm. Because again, I think that is the key. So far, uh, when you do the personal development on a one-on-one or a retreat uh, on a retreat center, it is relatively expensive. And for this to really work, we need to make this accessible for everyone in society. It's not just uh, something that democracy uh, demands, but it's also what will actually make this work. That a lot mm-hmm. of people, a critical mass, but distributed everywhere in society gets access to the tools for personal inner development. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Thomas. So we, we are at the, at the end of our time here. And of course, we uh, just scratched the surface here. Uh, uh, the book, The Nordic Secrets, that you wrote together with Lenny Rachel Anderson, uh, also goes in the end of the book into how to apply this and what to learn from this Nordic secret. So that is definitely a resource to find out more of your thinking in this. Is there also a particular website you would ask people to go to if they want to find out more? Yeah, yeah, I would recommend to read uh, again. Yes, absolutely. The 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 Nordic secret that at the end of the book we are uh, talking a little bit about what could this next societal transition look like when we move from the modern and the postmodern world into perhaps what we name in, in the book a meta-modern society mm-hmm. that would be a deliberately developmental society. So I definitely recommend that. Uh, my latest book, uh, The World We Create, takes a much, much longer historical perspective and actually goes back all the way to Big Bang and showing this complexification process that has been going on in the world ever since the Big Bang. I recommend that as well, of course. 
And then finally, the website of our project Emerge with the URL whatisemerging.com, where we look at uh, this societal transition and what is emerging from a lot of different perspectives and show many cases of many interesting individuals and initiatives that are ongoing everywhere in the world today. Thomas, it was great to have you here. Thank you very much for your insights. Uh, thank you very much for your time and thank you everyone for listening. Yes, and thank, thank you again for having me on your channel. Thank you. It was a pleasure.